Thank you, worship team, for leading us in songs of praise of Jesus Christ and remembering the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus for our sakes. We welcome all of you to our service this morning. Good to see all of you here gathered together to worship Jesus. I want to wish you all a, a happy Advent Sunday. Did you know it was Advent Sunday? Yeah. Neither did the first service, okay? But uh, <laughs> uh, it's because we're, uh, you know, we come out of an independent Bible church background. We're kind of not big on the church calendar events, or the high, kind of the different major events like Advent. We, we kind of think, oh, that's kind of, isn't that what the Roman Catholics kind of, you know, do? And, you know, but, you know, Advent just means, simply means that it's the coming of Christ. And uh, I think for all of us as Christians, uh, we can celebrate the coming of Christ, can't we? Yes, I think we can. We do, we do, exactly. And we don't need to just limit to a day. We tend to celebrate it on Christmas Day. We can uh, celebrate it uh, this whole season. And in fact, um, you know, all the, all the stores in the world, they want you to celebrate it all, the all season. So let's, uh, let's have some another reason to celebrate it all season, even as the stores want us to celebrate for another uh, reason. But uh, this day marks the beginning of the, uh, the time when we as a church anticipate and prepare for the celebration of the birth of Christ. And uh, and so this morning, I want us to kind of look at a few passages, or a passage that reminds us of the significance of the birth of Christ, why Jesus Christ came. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. Again, uh, just, uh, we as a church, we celebrate Christ. We have uh, several events. We kind of mentioned some of them in our bulletin. I do want to just, uh, for me, uh, I want to invite you all out, if you have not already made plans, to our Christmas Day service. Christmas Day service. Yes, I know we have a Christmas Sunday service, kind of on the 24th, and on that Monday morning is Christmas Day. And so we're going to have a service here, and if you haven't made any plans or you'd like to just join with us in praising God, you, you, please come and join us. It'll be at 9.30 here in this room, so 9.30, okay? Uh, and that's uh, just a wonderful, uh, wonderful opportunity for us to worship the Lord on Christmas Day. God, again, uh, brings us to a book uh, that, in, uh, that in our studies of it, we've come to realize that n- more than any other Old Testament book, more than all the other uh, 38 books of the Old Testament, this book of Isaiah tells us the most about the birth and the coming of Christ. In fact, it tells us not only all about his first coming, but it tells us a lot about, as we've been looking in the past few weeks, his second coming, that he will come again and establish his reign on the earth. And this passage that we'll look at today speaks to us of the coming of Christ to save mankind. It speaks of his first coming today. And for us, as we celebrate Christmas season, all in the midst of all the hustle and bustle, all the decorations and all the songs and all the meals and all the, the gatherings and all the, dec- and all the special events that we put on our calendars, we, we, do so, we do all these things because of Christ. We do it because we, we want to make much of this holiday, this season. Um, but I hope that uh, we don't end up getting caught up in the celebration of the celebration and forgetting the, the one, the son, in whom we celebrate. And I, I hope that uh, in this week and next week and the week to come, as we are preparing for Christmas, uh, up to Christmas, sun, uh, Christmas Sunday, we're going to take a look at some various passages from Isaiah 50 through 53. They're going to focus us on the reason why Christ came, the significance of why Christ came. And I think if you're a Christian, you already know why. We just reminded ourselves through communion. Christ came to save sinners. Christ came 
to save sinners. And that little baby that was born, he was adorable and cute, but he came for a very specific purpose, to live a righteous, perfect life, and then to give that perfect, righteous, innocent life on the cross, dying a terrible death for the sins of mankind. That's why he came. And that's what we see all throughout the scriptures. In fact, uh, I'm just reminded of a, of a passage this morning that uh, the, the, the people would, uh, many people would look to the scriptures thinking that that is where they find eternal life. But in reality, when they go and look to the scriptures, they realize that it speaks about Jesus. It speaks about Jesus. What a wonderful truth that Jesus is the key to eternal life. Well, uh, we are in chapter 50 this morning, and as we look at chapter 50, just as a, uh, as a reminder to us, this text and what we're going to do in the next few weeks is a, it's simply a, an opportunity for us to testify of what we have come to know. John writes in his uh, first epistle, 1 John 4, 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That's, that's what we would testify. That's what John testifies. Is that your testimony? Is that our witness? I know some of our saints are going to go out and witness this uh, this afternoon at, uh, at a nearby uh, nursing home. That's going to be their witness. They're going to go out there and they're going to testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And I'm praying that this will be uh, a theme for us this Christmas season as we remember that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Isaiah chapter 50 is in this midst of a section where God is comforting Israel. He's giving encouragement to Israel in the midst of their captivity to find comfort in their deliverer. That is the Messiah, the Messianic servant. We've uh, looked at that. uh, last, Last week we looked at chapter 49 where the whole earth, not just Israel, but the whole earth can find joy, can rejoice, can give thanks because of the comfort and compassion that comes through the Lord's servant. Uh... Chapter 49 was what was known as one of the servant songs. It was the second of the servant songs. Today we arrive at chapter 50, the third of the four servant songs. These servant songs basically describe, give detailed prophecies about the messianic servant, about Jesus Christ. And today's servant song focuses on the obedience of the servant. As we look to this chapter then this morning... uh, this, this chapter is an opportunity for, uh, for God to assure his people, to assure his people, particularly his people that were in captivity, written to those Israelites in captivity first, to assure them that their deliverance will take place, that he is committed to their deliverance. He will bring to pass their deliverance despite their doubts and fears. As an outline for us today, as we look to this passage, we'll find three points. And I'm going to learn at, look at three truths about the servant who came to save. Three truths about the servant who came to save. It may be an encouragement to you, as a, particularly if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It may just remind you of why we celebrate Christmas. But it also, for those of us who are here who do not yet know Jesus, maybe you're not sure about where you are with your, with your relationship with Jesus Christ. May this passage, these texts, be an encouragement to you to consider today, if you have not already, to turn from your sins, and turn in faith and rely upon the Lord Jesus to save you. All right, let's look, take a look at this passage then. The first truth that we learn about the servant who came to save is found in verses 1 to 3, is that the servant came to save his people from sin. The servant came to save his people from sin. And uh, just as another, an alternate outline, it's the hindrance to deliverance. For it's written to the people of Israel, and God explained to them the hindrance to their deliverance. 
Back in chapter 49, verse 14, if you, you can look there if you wish, but the nation Israel uh, had basically doubted and feared that God had forgotten them. They, because they were in captivity, because they were in, uh, enslaved in Babylon, they thought that the Lord had forsaken them, had forgotten them. And of course, from 14 and 15 on, God gives us this great assurance, this beautiful picture of how, you know, moms will forget their nursing babes before I forget you. That's, God will not forget you. That's a beautiful picture. But in continuing his reply to their doubts and their fears, God addresses the nation's challenge to his will and to his power to deliver. They challenge his will. They question his will to deliver. That Does he really want to save us? Because it sure doesn't seem like it. And they challenge his power to deliver. Maybe he's not able to deliver us. God addresses both of these in his words here in verse 1 to 3. Verse 1. First, God addresses the challenge to his will. They they question, does God really want to save us? Maybe he doesn't want us anymore. Thus says the Lord, verse 1, Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. The Lord's answer indicates that the people blamed God for their captivity. They were blaming that God had divorced them. He'd used this imagery of a, of a husband, or they were using this imagery of a husband and a wife who basically, he found something he didn't like about his wife, so he just divorced her, gave her a certificate. That's the Old Testament law. They would give a certificate so that she could then be set free, that there was a reason that he didn't like her, so she could then, you know, uh, perhaps remarry. But he had sent her away. The second imagery that, the, that is used of the, of the nation's thoughts about God was the imagery of a debtor paying off his creditors. That somehow Israelites believed that maybe God owed something to someone. He owed something to another nation. Maybe he owed something. There's some who believe that God owed something to Satan. There's God, you know. So they owed something so that he had to actually, he, he couldn't help it. He, had to, he was in debt. He had to sell Israel and give them into the, ha- the captives, captivity of somebody else. Because he owed them something. But when you consider these possibilities for why Israel was in captivity, both of them are preposterous. They're, in fact, blasphemous even. God clarifies to Israel. He says, basically, even these are rhetorical questions that he asks. The implication is that he says, you say that I've divorced you? Well, show me the certificate of divorce. Where is it? You will look for it, but you're not going to find it. It's all figuratively speaking. That God had not divorced his people Israel. He had made a commitment. He had chosen Israel. He was never, not going to forsake Israel. He committed to them. And what's more, does God owe anything to anyone? No. Not at all. God owes no one nothing. In fact, everybody owes all their, everything to God. God doesn't owe anyone that he would have to pay off someone by selling Israel, by getting rid of Israel. In fact, the Lord clarifies here. He says, no, it's, it's not a problem of my will to save you. God is patient, not wishing for anyone to perish. That's God. But the Lord clarifies for Israel why they are in captivity. The reason why they're in captivity, why they're sold, why they've been sent away is because of their sin. It's because you were sold for your iniquities, for your transgressions your mother was sent away. It's not God's fault that they are in captivity. Though, yes, God is the one who sends them into captivity. But it is their fault, and it's because of their rebellion and sin against God. 
They rejected God, and that's why they were sent into captivity. And though time and time again, God sent them his prophets. God came knocking at the door through his prophets, calling them to repent, calling them to believe. But how did they respond? Verse 2, why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? The fact is, for Israel, God sent them many prophets, including Isaiah, each one announcing the, the, a judgment upon them that was coming because of their sin, each time telling them that they needed to repent and believe and trust in him, each time calling them away from their idolatry, but each time there was no one to answer. Each time they might, they might, there was a, maybe a temporary response and then back into a cycle of idolatrous rebellion. They did not heed God. They continued on in sin and willfully chose to separate from God. They abandoned God, not the other way around. They chose slavery to sin rather than service to God. In the same verse, the Lord addresses those who think that perhaps he somehow lacked the power to deliver them. So God has the will to deliver. It's because it's rather their sin that's the, the, the cause. But then he addresses those who would say, well, maybe he doesn't have the power to deliver Verses, the remainder of verse 2 to 3. Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? That somehow God is, his arm is only so long and they are, Israel is just out of reach. Just, just barely. Oh, they've gone too far. He's only the God of Israel. He can't reach the Babylon to save them, perhaps. Or have I no power to deliver? That's the title of our sermon. And really the, the issue here is that Israel is questioning God's power to deliver. Is God, can, can God deliver them? Of course he has power. Look at what he says in the rest of the chapter, in the rest of these two verses. Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. He's talking about uh, how God's power over the seas. Uh, various times in the Old Testament, we see God's power over seas where he parts the, the Red Sea. He parts the Jordan River where there was once a huge body of water, there was nothing but dry land so that the Israelites could walk across the land safely. And when it was time for God to, uh, for the, his people to get through, he brought the waters down as even a judgment upon the Egyptian army. God controls the seas. God also controls the heavens, the skies. Verse, uh, verse 3, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their, sackcloth their covering. He's talking about that God can cause it so that the light goes out, that there's darkness. God controls it so that he, will, he can cause there to be eclipses and of, of light. That is God's sovereign power. He controls the seas, he controls the skies, and by implication, he controls everything in between. God is all-powerful. He, of course, he has power to deliver. No, his arm is not too short. It is always long enough to ransom. The problem for Israel and why they are still in captivity has been and always will be their sin. And that's true for Israel, and that's true for all mankind. And that's why God sent his servant, though. Because of our sin, that hindered us from our deliverance. None of us, because of our sin, none of us, not even uh, not Israel, not us, could save ourselves. None of us could have just chosen, oh, I'm going to just choose to follow God at this point. We all were dead in our trespasses and sins. And because of our, we're dead, we could not do anything about coming back to life. And so God sent his son, his servant, to save his people from sin. We see this emphasized in the life of Christ throughout the New Testament. 
in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, uh, when an angel appeared to Joseph regarding Mary, the angel said of Mary, she will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That, of course, took place. That verse was a, a fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14, which we looked at a, a little while ago. This, this understanding of the servant of Jesus coming to save his people from the sins continued on into the book of Acts, into the early church. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31, Peter, in preaching to the Sanhedrin, said, He of Jesus is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God sent Jesus to grant repentance to both Israel and to all who believe upon him. God sent him to bring forgive, offer forgiveness of sins. Paul and the, the Apostle Paul would say a similar truth in 1 Timothy 1.15 when he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Jesus came to save sinners whether in Israel or whether in the world. He was born to save us from our sins. He is a light to the nations. There can be no salvation for anyone apart from recognizing, first and foremost, that the hindrance to our deliverance is our sin. You cannot come to the Savior without recognizing that we have a problem with our sin. It's our sin that's been keeping us away. We say, well, God, you're the, you're one, you kept my eyes blind. That's why I don't, I'm not believing in you. No, it's your sin. We know in the providence of God, he is the one who opens up our eyes. But it is our sin that we choose. If, he, if given our choice, we would choose our sin time and time again. If God would not open up our eyes to believe and see the truth about his son, his savior, all of us would be in bed right now holding on to our favorite sins. We would not care about the Lord. We would not care to choose him. So that's why Jesus came. He came to be a savior from our sins. He came to address the hindrances to deliverance that the Israelites experienced, but all mankind has experienced throughout history. This is why Jesus came. This is why we celebrate Christmas. The forgiveness of our sins is something that all of us need if we wish to have a right relationship with our creator God. And that is our greatest need. We do not need more stuff. We need our Savior. We need the Son. This forgiveness comes through the servant. And this leads to our second, uh, second truth about the, why the servant came. The servant came also to save by the power of God. He came to save his people from their sins, but he came to save by the power of God. Here in verses 4 through 9 is, uh, is the servant song. Officially, it all goes all the way to verse 11. It's the servant song. The speaker here changes from God in verse, in verse 1 to 3 to the servant here who's speaking in verse 4 to 9. And prevalent, all prevalent throughout this section is the use of, or reference of the God as the title, the Lord God. You see it four times, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. It's, it's just, the repetition is quite obvious. He's, the servant is speaking all about the Lord God. The Lord God did this. The Lord God did this. The Lord God did this. Why this emphasis? Well, first of all, what does this title, the Lord God, means? The Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. It means master. It means Lord. It means sovereign. Someone who, is, who has a, a right over our lives. And, but the word God that's capitalized, usually small caps in many of our translations, 
is actually, a transla- is actually the translation of God's personal name. His name Yahweh, the I Am. And so the Lord God is a reference to the fact that this is the sovereign Lord that is speaking. The sovereign I Am. The eternally existent sovereign God who, who, who created all the universe, whom everybody in this universe answered to, is speaking. And this sovereign God is the one who helps the servant in his mission. The servant does not work alone. He, is his, he works in the power of the sovereign I am. It is the God who empowers him and helps him to fulfill his mission to save sinners. And in this servant song, which, you know, if you think about the servant song, most likely you will probably, if you were asked to give servant songs, many of you will identify Isaiah 53. Uh, some of you might Isaiah, identify Isaiah 42 and even to uh, somewhat 49. But 50 is sort of forgotten. But 50 is rich because 50, chapter 50, the sermon song here gives us an insight into some of the personal thoughts of the Messiah regarding his suffering towards his mission. There's rich theology here, but there's a vivid ethos. There's a vivid picture of Christ's character here. His character of commitment to following and obeying his father. It's great, it serves as a really encouraging example to all of us because all of us are also following after our God. And his example is an example for us. But we see then as we, that the sovereign Lord helps the servant by first and foremost giving him instruction in verse 4. Giving him instruction in verse 4. The Lord God, we read on, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. He awakens me. Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. It says here that the Lord, the, ser- uh, the Lord God gives his servant the tongue of disciples, the speech of disciples, that is. That he's basically taught the words and the truths that a disciple needs to learn and teach others. It's kind of cool because Jesus, or the servant is talking about how he's learning things from God the Father. It means he's a learner. He's a disciple, and we know what this word term disciple because it comes, this a, plays a significant role in the purpose and the mission of this church. Then all of us, we think of the Great Commission, we are called to make disciples of all the nations, right? But before we are called to make disciples of all the nations, Jesus, the servant, is a disciple himself. He is the ultimate servant. He learns truths from God. And then passes it on to his disciples. He learns them so that he may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. Jesus' Jesus' instructions from God enabled him to speak words of of comfort, of encouragement, of, uh, of strengthening to those who are weary. This prophecy of the servant was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. We see it in places like Mark chapter 1, verse 35. We see how in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. See, Jesus, uh, often throughout his life and ministry, would go away uh, and, and to be alone with God the Father, praying. And it is in those prayer times where he would receive instruction from God regarding his ministry. 
It seems always real clear that whenever you see the gospels mentioning that Jesus went away to pray, though I believe because of Isaiah 50, he, went, he did this often. He prayed daily, sought the Lord daily. But whenever the New Testament focuses on it, he prays overnight, and then he makes some new direction. He goes a new direction. He has a, he's a new, uh, uh, a new stage in his ministry. He selects some disciples, or he turns to, uh, to head towards Jerusalem. That is Jesus, because he's hearing the instructions from his Father, and he's heeding them. And whatever he learned from the Father, what's more, he would, whatever truths that he would learn, he would pass on. Jesus' teaching ministry was so strong and vibrant, not only because he was the Son of God, because whatever he spoke was the words that he heard from God the Father. In John chapter 12, verse 49, we see this. John, uh, Jesus says, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment so as, as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus speaks not just his own words. He doesn't make up his words. He doesn't just come up with, yeah, I think that's, that's good. Whatever he spoke were the words that he received from his Father. He heard from the Father, and he spoke those words. He knew that the Father's words, the Father's commandments, are the key to eternal life. The message of the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim was the message that he received from the Father. And he knew that that message was to be proclaimed so that those who heed the gospel would find eternal life. To reject the words of Jesus, then, was to reject the words of the Father. So not only did Jesus was helped by God in being instructed so that in all that he taught and all that he spoke uh, was that which could be encouraging and comforting was be, uh, and, uh, so that he could pass on to other disciples who would then teach it to others. It was that all of that was from God's instruction. But we see in verses 5 and 6 that another way that God helps him was that God helped Jesus to be obedient, to obey those instructions. God not only gives us instruction, but he helps us to obey those instructions and does the same with Jesus. We learn in verses 5 to 6 here that Jesus does not reject the Father's instructions, but he obeys them with the help of his Father. And he does so because he's empowered by God. And this is particularly striking because the instructions that God gives Jesus are instructions that lead to his suffering and agony and death. You know, if you receive instructions that would say, well, you know, hey, I want you to drink this poison, and then I want you to whip yourself, I want you to jump off a cliff, I want you to experience, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of pain and suffering, if someone told you that, you said, no thank you, right? You wouldn't want to experience that pain normally. Most people, normal people would not want to do that. But here Jesus is instructed by God to take a course of path that is going to lead to his suffering. And Jesus is a man, right? He feels emotions, just as you and I do. He is tempted, just as you and I are, yet without sin. But he, listen to how he obeys, the, why and how he doesn't obey the God, the Father. The Lord God has opened my ear, And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. 
I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Um, these verses sound familiar because they are verses that we see fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't they not? They describe the obedience of the, suf- of the servant in the face of suffering. He looks back on his ministry, and he first and foremost acknowledges, verse 5, that it was God who opened his ear. Sometimes we see about God, there's terms of knowledge where God opens our eyes to see the truth. God opens our ears when he wants us to obey them. And God helped, basically, Jesus to heed his words. That's why Jesus was not a disobedient, nor did he turn back from what God called him to do, despite how difficult it would be. In obedience to God, Jesus reveals how he gave himself to physical abuse. He allowed his back and his cheek to be struck. He allowed his face to be spat upon. He allowed himself to experience great humiliation. Because he wanted to obey his father. We see this reflected in the life of Jesus, do we not, in the Gospels? In Matthew 27, 26. In describing Jesus after his arrest in his court trial before Pontius Pilate. Then Pontius Pilate released Barabbas for them because everybody asked for Barabbas. They asked Jesus to be crucified. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. This word scourging, as you many of you know, is whip, is, is like is kind of like the term whipping, but it's whipping on steroids. You know? It's not just one little, you know, rope. You know, you, you use a rope, you ever kind of Fling it around and kind of whip people. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Just me, huh? All right, so uh, it hurts, all right? I tell my kids, don't, don't do that. You know, whip your kid, your brother or sister. In those days, those whips, these whips, this scourging was not just a single rope. It was a, a, a whip that had multiple throngs, multiple kind of strands. And at the end of each strand, that would be bad enough. But at the end of each of the strands, they would add pieces of bone or pieces of lead, metal, to the ends. The effect, of course, is when you apply broken bone or lead to a flesh is it tears your flesh. And so you can imagine it wasn't just one whipping. It was multiple whippings. Over, uh, and so leaving a scourge, anyone who went through a scourging was guaranteed to lose a lot of blood because their back would be basically torn apart by the scourging. And this is what Jesus willingly endured in obedience to his father. Not only was his back struck, but his cheeks were too. Uh, just uh, um, uh, they, Matthew 27, 30, tells about they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Uh, give us a little bit of context. The Roman soldiers who were entrusted with crucifying him wrapped the crown of thorns and placed it upon his head. They gave him a reed, and then they, they put a robe around him. They started mocking him, and they, you know, basically caught, you know, uh, hitting him and calling, telling him to prophesy. And after mocking him, they, they took that reed, and they just began beating him on the head where his, that crown of thorns was. They would strike him. They put a, a hood over him. They strike him. And they say, prophesy, who hit you? They spat upon him along the way as well. It wasn't just the Romans. uh, It was others at the crucifixion. Jesus also spat upon Jesus. It was great humiliation to be spat upon, even today. 
in all this, Jesus endured because of obedience to his father. He would not be disgraced. He would not be ashamed. He would not turn back from his mission. He would make his face like flint. Why? How? In light of all this. If you and I just think of it from our pure humanity, all of us would flee this kind of pain and sorrow. None of us would stay. None of us would endure it. And to do it for maybe even a good person, you know, it might pass our mind. But to do it for a world of rotten sinners, nah, no, no thank you. But Jesus endured this. Jesus suffered this. This is the servant obeying his father because the Lord God helps him. So what's amazing is that we realize even here that the servant is revealing that it's not easy. It won't come naturally to him. That in his humanity, it will be challenging. It will be hard. The Lord God helps him. But for Jesus, where is his strength? Or for the servant, where is his strength? His, his strength comes from the one who is, who is near him, who will vindicate him. Verse 8 and 9. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Here, the servant speaks about the one who will vindicate him being near. That's God the Father. The servant knows that there is no one who can justly condemn him. No one can justly uh, have a, bring up, contend with him, bring a case against him because he's innocent. You know, there's not a single person in this world who has died an innocent death. All of us are sinners. All of us are, are, are deserve God's eternal wrath. But there was only one who died an innocent death, and that's our Lord and Savior Jesus. And what's more, he says, he, his strength comes from the one who vindicates him, and he challenges those who will contend him or, or challenge him or condemn him. But he tells them, he, he reminds them that whereas all his enemies will wear out like a garment, that is the moth will eat them, they're going to wear out, they're going to disappear, they're going to fade away. But by implication, he will not. The, his enemies will wear out, but he will not. Because why? Because someone's going to vindicate him. His father's going to vindicate him. There's an implication here that, this is a, that the Lord God will raise him up from the dead. And this is, of course, what exactly happened with Jesus. First of all, the wrestling with, uh, the, the, wrestling with his, the, the suffering that was before him. In Matthew 26, 36 through 46, we see a very uh, vivid description of Jesus' humanity, his wrestling with uh, even the impending death and suffering that was coming upon him that night was before he was betrayed. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, he began to pray to God the Father. And he prayed three times, essentially the same thing. We see the first prayer in verse 39. He fell on his face and he prayed saying, My Father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. It's the cup of suffering. Yet not as I will, but as you will. 
Even earlier, we'd already, uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus was grieved and distressed. He was grieved at the prospect of his suffering, his arrest, his betrayal, his uh, trials, unjust trials, and his inevitable crucifixion. And so he prays and he asks God, if it's possible, let, it, let this pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then verse 42, a few verses down, we see Jesus coming a second time and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he prays that the third time in the same, with the same words. Jesus found strength to face his death from the Father. Were it not for the Father strengthening Jesus to endure the suffering and death on the cross, there would be no salvation. Jesus went obediently to the cross because God the Father strengthened him for the, for the task, for the mission. And since God helped him, Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we might be saved. And by the way, just looking at this passage, I just want to add, there's just encouragement for us, for our own counseling. There are times in our life when our will does not match up with God's will, right? You want something. You want some ease. You want something, some blessing. And yet when you look to, and with encouragement for you in those times, whatever it is that you want or maybe you've been praying for but you don't get, look to God's word and see what is it that he offers you And as you compare his will and you bring to him your will, learn to say, as Jesus said, yet not my will, but your will be done. We find that God would help you just as he helped Jesus to find contentment and obedience and submission to his will. There's one last truth that this chapter reveals about the servant who came to save. He came to save his people from sins. He came to save by the power of God, but he also came to save those who trust in him. Verse 10, 11, here we find the the hope for deliverance. Uh, Two choices are offered. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. These two verses basically offer hope, are an offer of hope and a warning of doom to those who hear these words. When heard first by the Israelites, particularly those in captivity, it would have reminded them of why they were in captivity, their exposure of their sin, verse 1 to 3. It was their sin, that's why they were in captivity. And they would be reminded of the example of the servant, verse 4 to 9. All would provide encouragement to them of how they ought to respond in captivity. That they would know that it's their sin that's in captivity, that they're where they are, so therefore they need to repent. And what's more, and since the Messiah endured suffering in obedience to God, how could they then not strive to, to also endure suffering in, to strive to obey God? One commentator describes uh, Jesus' examples as this way. In short, in describing his own discipleship, the servant has shown them what God requires of all his people. Not empty profession, but wholehearted, costly obedience. And that's what we see here 
here, after all this, God then calls those who are going to trust, those who fear him, those who basically are going to listen to his voice, those who basically are, are walking in darkness, they're, they realize they're in darkness, and they have no light. These are people who realize they're dead in their sins, but they know that the Lord God and his servant have the answers. People who come to recognize that. He calls them to respond in this way, to trust in the name of the Lord and rely on God, your God. Stop turning to your own ways and put your trust in the Lord, your God. You're tired of groping in the darkness as you try to figure out life on your own. If you've been resisting the Lord, his call upon you long enough, and you realize that how your search for all the answers on your own have led to you to realize that you have none of the answers, then turn to the one who offers to you the light in the darkness. You realize you're in darkness. Turn to the one who has the light, the one who has a light that shines to all the nations. That's what the, verse 10 is calling for people to hear who read this verse to respond. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, then this is a call to you. Put your trust in him, in Jesus Christ, and rely upon him for your salvation. The alternative choice, number two, is in verse 11. It's for those in this world who think that they're, who are in darkness, but instead they try to find their own light. They try to make their own light so they can see. They create their own fire. They create their own torches. They put it all around them so they will be able to see as far as they need to see, at least what they think they need to see. They will walk by this light, these torches. But God says of them, or the servant says of them, This is what you will get when you help yourselves to your own fires, to your own torches. You will lie down in torment. Whoa. This is not God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> right? This is you help yourself, you will get torment from God. God wants us to realize that if you want help for salvation there's only one place to turn it's to God the Father if you choose to continue to put, choose the lights of your life to show as your, uh, to, for your deliverance or for, so that you can live it will lead eventually to your eternal torment eternal judgment from God because the lights that we create, no matter how great, and what are these lights? Well, you could just simply say they're the things we look to in this world for strength, the things we look to for deliverance, the things we look to for hope. Maybe it's our, we look to our good deeds as being, you know, making sense of our world. Maybe it's, we think about our morality. Perhaps some of us think about our accomplishments, our jobs, our professions. Some of us think of our titles. Some of us think of it's, it's the possessions that we have, the stuff of our world. Maybe it's the relationships that we built. All these can be considered lights. They're things that are made in and of themselves, are not bad. They may be good to some extent, right? You can find joy in these things. But if they are, if they are of our own creation, they will not save. They do not light enough of our life. They lead us only to the grave, to torment.
There's only one hope of salvation, and that is in the name of Jesus Christ. It's the name of the Lord. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God for salvation. The New Testament gets this in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, regarding Jesus. The apostles say, uh, speak, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus came to save those who trust in him. He is the only name by which anyone and everyone in this world can be saved. Have you bowed the knee and confessed Jesus as Lord? Have you put your faith in him to save you? Have you come to a place where you recognize that you have been walking in darkness and that you need light? That light is found through Jesus, through trusting in him and his work on the cross, that he died in place of you. Will you not receive the gift of salvation through the forgiveness of sins that he accomplished on the cross on your behalf? And if you do that, you will receive the greatest Christmas gift that anyone has ever given. For those of us who have already received this gift, well, I hope it's been encouraging to you. I hope it's reason to give joy. I hope it's reason to be excited. I hope it's reason to, you know, hey, even raise your hands. Or better yet, to go out and tell somebody else about the light of the nations who was born to save sinners from our sins through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. He is none other than Jesus Christ. and He's whose birth we celebrate this Christmas. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your son. Thank you for this promise, this revelation of, the, of Jesus and what he would endure in his obedience to you in the face of suffering and death. Oh, Lord, thank you that you strengthened your servant, that you helped him to obey you, that you gave him his instructions. For, Lord, we know that apart from him, none of us would be saved. So we thank you for this. This week and this Christmas, Lord, as we all celebrate, as we reflect upon, uh, and, and go, as we go about all our Christmas celebrations and activities, Lord, help us be mindful of the reason why Christ came, to save us from sins. And Lord, help us uh, to be faithful, to tell others, to be a, like John, to testify that you have sent your son into the world to be the savior of this world. Lord, we pray for any who, did, who are here who do not yet know Jesus, who are still thinking about it, maybe on, on the edge. They're, still, they're waiting, they're trying to figure it out. Lord, may you open their eyes and open their ears to see and hear the truth and trust in the name of your servant, and to rely upon you, our creator God. And we pray that you would be glorified this Christmas season as we worship and serve you and tell others of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.